M-S-W Media. So, Renato, does U.S. Senator Bob Menendez have a defense to all the charges that have been brought against him? Uh, It's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Ringappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. Okay. Bob, Bob, Bob. Got yourself in <laughs> well, trouble Well, you know, again. it's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because the guy, I think, started doing this stuff right after he beat the last corruption Literally case, right? Literally right after. Like, yep. I think he um, skated in 2017 because of a hung jury. And then literally in 2018, hooked up with this woman and started engaging in more shenanigans. So, you know, I mean, you know, the criminal mind maybe in some ways better than I do. Like, I would feel like, you know, the FBI is watching you. So why would you think that you would get away with this? Well, a couple of thoughts. I mean, first of all, the reason people commit crimes aren't entirely rational. Okay. That's not the reason that people do it. Um, One question people ask themselves all the time is like, why don't people, you know, draw some lines or don't get so greedy you know, a lot of times the way people get caught, a fraud, for example, is they embezzle just a little too much money. Like if they just embezzle a little bit, no one would ever caught it. But once you get, you know, you can take a little bit of money here and there, but then they just get carried away and they have a lifestyle they can't afford. Similarly for Menendez, he could have viewed it as like, wow, I dodged a bullet. This is amazing. I'm going to just sort of retire the rest of my years. I think, I think for him, there's something particular that has happened. You know, Asha, most people, when the DOJ and the FBI is coming after him, they're crapping their pants, Mm -hmm. okay? They basically are looking to surrender. And what people, I think, you know, don't completely understand is if you really have great lawyers and a lot of money and you, you know, depending on the type of crime, you can have a very good chance of beating the government. In fact, I've done it myself. I do that. It's kind of part of what I do for a living. It's like go up against the government and, you know, fight them in criminal cases. And I think for Menendez, I think he perhaps felt invincible by it. In other words, they took their shot at him and they didn't kill him and didn't take him down. And he probably was like, you know, they aren't so bad. They aren't so tough. That I think that's an element of it too. Yeah, though he he's the chair of the Foreign, Foreign, Relations, Foreign Relations Committee, and the charges that he was able to escape before, I believe, involved um, alleged bribery uh, charges related to payments he was accepting from some donor or you know some like local person. And this indictment involves the government of Egypt, and we can get into some of the national security implications of that. But you, if you're the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you've got to know that when you're talking to 
Egyptian officials and intelligence officers, you know, that's not, it, it's not just your, you know, run of the mill, um, I'm trading some bribes under the table and I'm going to get yeah. away with it. Like, you're going to get caught. And um, I don't know, maybe the gold bars were just too tempting to pass up. I mean, who among us haven't, hasn't, you know, engaged in questionable behavior to to get a couple of gold bars to put in our safety deposit box. Well, it's mostly it's mostly like Republicans watching Fox News, right? Don't they have the advertisements for gold uh all the time? Like well, it's like the people who think the world's ending next year, right? They're always the ones who who want to turn yeah. their wealth into gold. Right. You think either the financial system is going to collapse or you plan to flee the country. That too. Okay. Or you need a right? way of keeping That's what I was thinking. keeping a lot of wealth without in a small space without, you know, depositing it in a bank, right? Because that would cause what's called yeah. CTR to be filed, which could raise some alarms. Why is the senator depositing $500,000 in cash or whatever? Yeah. Um, look, I don't really understand completely Menendez's motivations. I mean, do we think some of this is, I, I'm going to put love in air quotes, okay? Lust, love, whatever. I don't know. Um, like his his wife got him into this. Um, it's really difficult to explain, but I think it's fair to say, you know, uh, people in this space, whether people I used to prosecute, people I represent, they, they're, they don't make great life choices, which is why they're in that situation. And, you know, I have people, sometimes partners of mine like, well, why is the client trying to do this and that? And it's like, well, look, I, I represent, you know, alleged criminals. Uh, they don't, they don't necessarily make great life choices. That's why they're paying me, uh, you know, all this money to try to get them out of the, out of trouble. So yeah, it is what it is. I think Menendez made some really stupid choices. I think the, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, he's going to learn, I think the hard way that like lightning doesn't always strike twice. Right. It's a, it's not like yeah. you could keep, achieving the same results over and over and over again. So, you know, he's facing several counts. I've got the indictment here in front of me. Um, and one of them is bribery. So he was using his uh, position on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, basically to give things of value Um to individuals who were then uh, paying him back. And basically, he was receiving payments from an Egyptian businessman, among others, from an Egyptian businessman who got some monopoly on halal food imports, which, by the way, let me just add here that I think one buried thing that no one has mentioned is in this whole scheme, among the different uh, harms that resulted from it was that U.S. meat exporters were paying higher prices because yeah. this guy, you know, who had this monopoly on imports and could would, could certify the meat coming in was pumping up the prices, partly because some of that money was being funneled back to Menendez. Uh, and so not only, you know, so the prices for our exporters went up and the price for of meat for people in Egypt went up. Um, I mean, I'm vegetarian, so, you know, I don't necessarily think that's like the, you know, catastrophic for the world, but um, it still sucks. It's, I mean, it's one thing if it's a matter of policy. It's another thing when it's happening because, you know, one of your senators is on the take. Right. Um, so he was getting uh, he was getting payments. So one count is conspiracy to commit bribery. Um, and then 
Another was conspiracy to commit honest services fraud. And I'd love to talk about that with you because I know that's a that's a tougher charge to make stick. Um, But I'm not really clear why. I think there's some Supreme Court decisions that have narrowed the scope of that particular crime. Um, And maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And then um, conspiracy to commit extortion under color of official right. Yeah. And you you think there might be a colorable defense here. Well, I, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he's pretty screwed. Okay, I don't, don't get me wrong. Okay, that's why you're, I think your question in the beginning wasn't, will he completely get off? Okay, the question is, is there a defense at all? <clears throat> and let's just sort of, I guess, let's start by talking about what bribery is. Um, and bribery is trading an official action for a thing of value. Okay. So I'll give you an example. Um, You know, perhaps let's just say, you know, Trump is trading, he's selling, you know, photos with him. Okay. When he's president, that's not an official action. Okay. You may sell the photo for $50,000. Everyone's like, why are you doing it? It's crazy. But that's not a bribe because he's not trading something and act on the United States government. If he's trading it for a pardon, for $50,000, it's different because pardon is an official act that he's undertaking as president. That's what bribery is. Audit, what's theft of honest services? So there is the, the fraud statutes, I think we totally, ever, people generally have an understanding of fraud. Fraud is when you lie to people to get their money. Okay. So very straightforward. So, you know, I trick you and say, hey, you're going to, uh, we have a get rich quick scheme. Just give me five grand. You're going to get 50 grand next week. And that's all a lie. I just take your money and I spend it on uh, horses at the hor- you know, horse races or something that um, that's, that's fraud. Well, what <clears throat> theft of honest services is there's a provision that essentially says if you deprive the people of the state, the country of your honest services, uh, you know, in office, that that could be essentially you're defrauding the people of that state by, in in other words, the idea being that you're holding yourself out to be the senator from New Jersey, but you're really working on behalf of the people of Egypt and yourself or whatever. Okay. Um, that used to be a fairly broad statute. It was used extensively. My former office in Chicago used to use it all the time because we have a lot of corruption in Chicago. Um, so it would be the charge. And I've, I sat through many trials in which that charge was explained to jurors. It got really, really scaled back by the Supreme court. Um, in the Bridgegate case, which everyone is probably familiar with that whole thing with, um, uh, governor Christie, um, and so forth. Um, you know, some of his, uh, his aides, um, but essentially the Supreme court is more or less, and just to make it simple, get to the point here. The 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 um the Supreme Court basically decided that statute was too vague. In criminal law, there's something there's a constitutional protection void for vagueness. You can't have criminal statutes that are so vague that you don't know what they mean, or that the ordinary person can't ascertain their meaning. And so they basically confine it to what essentially the bribery statute prohibits. So what's the difference between yeah bribery and yeah, I don't recall the subtle. There are, I'm sure, there's a subtle difference in terms of the elements or how you prove it up or something. Between, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't know off the top of my head the tactical reason why a prosecutor would charge it because it's a fairly recent change. Like I haven't, I haven't tried a a corruption case since uh, since this uh, the new Supreme Court decision. But I, I'm sure there's some reason why they charge both. 
But that's the touchstone. And when we analyze this trial in this case, and when we think about a defense, you have to think about this sort of trade between the official act for something of value. So what I would just say to everybody listening is there, everybody in the news got to see the pictures of the gold bars and the jackets full of cash. That's really interesting. Um, but what makes it a crime is connecting that to these official acts, which you started talking about. And I think what he's going to have to say, and he didn't focus on this publicly, but from a technical perspective, what he's going to have to say is, I was doing what I was doing for this friend of my wife's or associate of my wife's. It had nothing to do with any getting anything of value. I was doing it because I believed those things. And I thought that was the right thing to do or whatever. It had nothing to do with any sort of payment whatsoever. That's got to be his defense. Yeah. And and I'll just add here, I talked about the you know, Egypt connection, but there are two other parts of this, which is that he was also using his position to try to uh, disrupt a, a criminal prosecution by the New Jersey Attorney General's office related to another businessman in New Jersey. And he was trying to use his position to get the president to nominate someone for the U.S. Attorney of New Jersey that he thought he could be in a position to influence. And so I wonder, you know, and and when the facts detail these acts, um, you know, he's engaged in discussions, for example, with the New Jersey Attorney General's office. And of course, they are interacting with him as though he's a U.S. senator. And so maybe the theft of honest services is really coming in there where, you know, these people are, you know, taking him at face value, right? And um, accepting his, uh, you know, assertions or whatever his argument was as something that he's doing, you know, in the public interest or in his independent position, having evaluated it. And meanwhile, he's doing it again for um, for money and payment. Uh, and on the money and payment, he was using uh, his then-girlfriend, now-wife, as an intermediary for a lot of these things, um, though they found, you know, in the many envelopes stuffed with cash, which he claims was just a habit of his that he's kept since, you know, because of his parents' experience in Cuba, uh, did have fingerprints of some of these other defendants on them, which he he never explained. So, yeah, that was it. Was interesting that he came out and explained that <laughs> he hired a very good defense attorney, who I know very able defense attorney, but, um, what, you know, I don't really, I think he wanted to explain as much as possible and he was not allowed to explain the gold bars either. Right. No explanation of why he's getting, why he's keeping all these gold bars and Googling gold, you know, about gold bars. Um, yeah, I mean, he shouldn't have probably locked himself into anything at all regarding the money. I don't know if there's a good explanation for the money. I think that's the the problem that he has is that the jury's going to see the money and the gold bars and all that. And that's basically going to capture their attention. And it's going to be very hard to get them focused on anything else in the case, even though go having gold bars isn't a crime. I mean, otherwise maybe, you know, the, the half the, half the Republican base would be, uh, or some portion thereof would be in prison if that was a crime and having cash is not a crime, but yeah, I mean, I think that is a problem for him. I mean, one thing I would say though, just sort of to put a fine point on it in terms of what I think the defense would be, 
you know, if I was a United States Senator and I just really, I just thought Ashurangapa was the greatest thing ever. And I wanted to help you get a job. Or I wanted to help you not get charged or something. If I wanted to help you, your business in some way, whatever it might be, that's not necessarily crime. That may be poor judgment, maybe corrupt quote unquote in some way, but it's not like, that's not the crime, right? So that's, that's going to be the interesting thing. I mean, another kind of interesting question here is, do the defendants hang together or hang separately, so to speak? In other words, is there going to be some sort of common defense here? Is the wife and him going to be completely aligned? Or is the wife going to say that she was taken advantage of by him? Or is he going to point the finger at his wife or whatever? So, yeah, I have a question on that. Does So I would think they would hang together because they would have spousal privilege and they could not be compelled to testify against each other. Um, my question is, does that privilege extend to before they were married? Because they were married. I mean, a lot of the starts in, I guess they got married, um, a year after meeting. They met in 2018. They got married a year later. One has to wonder how much, you know, the fact that they could, well, they probably weren't obviously considering the fact that they could get caught. So maybe it wasn't a consideration, but would could they be compelled to testify against each other? I mean, they were going to take the fifth, but like, does a privilege apply, I guess, to before um, they got married? It, it generally, it covers past uh, criminal activity that you're telling your spouse about. So if I told my wife, hey, I committed a bank robbery two years ago, that's covered. If I'm saying, hey, let's let's rob a bank together, it's not. Like so ongoing crimes. Right. Crime fraud exception. Yeah, similar. But the, the issue is, the issue uh, is that you can't, it, it actually has an aspect where you cannot call them to this, like you cannot call the wife to the stand if they're currently married. If they get divorced, have a falling out and get divorced, yeah, then they can. But the thing is, the, the reason I ask whether they hang together separately, whether they're married or not, is that that right now, as let's just say everyone kind of goes together and is just like, this is not bribery and that sort of thing. That's a tough case, <laughs> to put it bluntly. That's an extraordinarily tough case to to beat. I don't I don't see lightning striking twice for Senator Menendez. Now, however, um if one if they have some fall guy, fall woman who's like, this was all so and so, and you know, she also fooled me, right? Like, let's just say that she was going to take the fall. And it's like, she was the one doing all the communications. She told me this was her brother's money. She told me this. She told me that. And, or whatever it might be. Then you have a more plausible defense. But of course, somebody's got to agree to basically be the fall person in that scenario, hypothetical scenario. Yeah. And I mean, in this, it would be, I mean, she would have to be the fall person because she's the one who is the intermediary. She's the one asking, where's my payment? Where's my luxury car? Um, you know, where's where's the money that you promised for all of this? And she's also delivering the information that Menendez is giving. Now, look, he is also meeting. I mean, sometimes she was arranging meetings and he's doing a lot of things that are um, and this is kind of gets to the national security angle where he's giving, he's giving information to Egyptian officials in person, um, and not just through his wife that really compromise U.S. interests and U.S. national security. Um, again, those are kind of adjacent 
to the actual criminal charges, but I don't think they should be overlooked in this whole thing. And it kind of gets to the hollowness of his refusal to step down, you know, and he's like, well, I'm entitled to a presumption of innocence and, you know, I'm innocent until proven guilty, which is true when it comes to losing your liberty. Yes, we we do create a high bar. You have a presumption of innocence before we throw you in jail. But when it comes to national security, the bar is much lower. And, you know, you a mere suspicion is enough to make you unsuitable to hold a position of public trust. I mean, if anyone underwent a background check and it was found out that they had personal and private meetings with with Egyptian intelligence officers, um, guess what? You probably would get a clearance. You probably wouldn't be put in charge of being able to hold or release foreign military aid to foreign countries. So I think it's just a red herring. And I would just say that if the person who is defending you most vehemently is George Santos, you have hit rock bottom, my friend. That's funny. Well, George Santos himself is very soon to be going convicted <laughs> fraudster, right? So convicted oh, felon. Yes. So yeah, well, they're sort of yeah, two peas in a pod. A little birds in a pod. <laughs> yeah, <feather>. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so um <laughs> yeah, I think about the presumption of innocence. There's something like a pet peeve as a as a lawyer who does a lot of you know, has done a lot of criminal defense is the presumption of innocence is a legal uh, construct that we have this an important part of our due process that we have in this country, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything outside of that context. In other words, you know, if if you're like, hey, I'm going on a date with this guy, I just matched him on Bumble or something, and you find out he's been indicted for rape, you're not going to be like, well, I don't know, it's totally innocent. Like for, but he's entitled to a presumption, <laughs> presumption of innocence. Of innocence. Let's yeah, take our chances. If you're under federal <laughs> indictment, you apply for a job. I mean, people aren't going to be like, well, you're entitled to a presumption of innocence and we'll hire you. Like, what? No. No. Right. It's just common sense, right? So, like, you have to, you know, ha- look at the evidence before you and make your own judgment on it. Um, I, in this case, I mean, boy, there's so much here. Um, it's and it's so colorful. One thing I will just say is what what matters, ironically, you know, what what people pay the most attention to. It, you know, are these sort of big visual things. And, you know, if you remember from the Manafort case, there's two Manafort indictments. It's the ostrich and jacket. And he did all sorts... Right, it's a freaking ostrich jacket, right? the gold he did all this... the ostrich jacket. <laughs> right, he did all this crazy stuff. He was, like, committing... Like, he was, like, obstructing justice while in prison and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And what do we remember? He like, He bought a jacket. And it's going to be the same thing here. Like the problem for Menendez is like, will he come up with anything that's going to distract the jury from the gold bars and the jackets full of cash? Probably not. Yeah. It was a $15,000 ostrich jacket. That's and quite kind nice. And pretty ugly. <laughs> it really looked, it looked like a members only jacket. If I recall. But, in, but, but some ostrich died to create it. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> or multiple hostages. Exactly. That's sad. I bet a lot of our listeners don't remember members only jackets, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so I, I, I get it. Uh, let me, let's ask, let me ask this question to you. You're coming at this from a national security perspective, Asha. Mm-hmm. What is the bigger harm here? Is it the, the, the sort of, I'll call it domestic, you know, the fraudulent, the fraudulent nature of this, right. In which he's, Defrauded all the you know, the people of New Jersey of honest representation and has violated his trust, 
or is it the potential harm to the United States? I mean, look, you know, depriving U.S. citizens and voters of your honest services is always a harm, right? Um, you know, they've elected an official. It, they're entitled to him representing their interests, the U.S. interests. And, um, you know, they that that is a harm when he violates that. And also it, it undermines people's faith in our government processes. And that's why we investigate public corruption. But there is a huge national security component here. If you look very carefully at the multiple instances where he's providing information to the Egyptian government. Now, you know, I think with the Mar-a-Lago case, we've kind of gotten conditioned that if it, you know, it only matters if it's classified. But there's a there's a huge universe of information that is of value to foreign governments, even if it's not classified. If it's non-public and it's sensitive, it's there. If there is no way that they would be able to know it, it helps them. It helps them yeah. create their own milita- their own foreign policy strategy. It helps them in negotiations. And when we don't know that they know it. It undermines our position. So one example here is that he was, Menendez was letting the Egyptians know in advance. So when he was, uh, as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he has the power to place holds on military aid going to foreign countries, or he can release it. Now, the formal approval process goes through the State Department. So, you know, the State Department representing U.S. interests, um, many other, many countries have to get certified to receive aid. They have to meet certain criteria. And in the case of Egypt, it's making progress on democracy and human rights, for example. And so, you know, we use the aid as leverage to get other countries to, you know, promote interests that we believe are important to the United States or to uh, the world. Um, what Menendez was doing is letting them know in advance that, you know, this hold is going to be released or I'm going to, you know, lift this hold or whatever. And what that does is it really undermines our overt negotiation posture um, and leverage that we might have if they know that this is going to come Regardless, and you know, I just think, it, and it, it's also, in my opinion, you know, impinging on executive branch prerogatives. Um, you know, I think there's a issue where that was beyond the scope of his role as a member of Congress to be, you know, coordinating advance with a foreign government without the knowledge of our own administration. Um, that's just one example. I can give you others that are even more egregious, but it's a way in which. You know, he was seriously undermining um, our foreign policy interests and, you know, our national security interests. Yeah, I mean, he, he I think he revealed, for example, who was stationed at the embassy, right? Like, generally speaking, like, here's the types of personnel that are there, for example, right? Yeah, he was giving basically our personnel blueprint of the Cairo embassy. Now, you know, as a counterintelligence agent here in the United States, look, most spies travel under diplomatic cover. They are at the embassy. And so, you know, your first and primary target doing counterintelligence is you focus on 
embassies and consulates and you try to figure out who are the real diplomats and who are the spies. And, you know, so so to get, again, this was non-public information, the precise numbers, who's there, what's the ratio, again, of nationals and, you know, American citizens. And by giving this over, he is helping their counterintelligence service. He's giving, you know, he's helping them farther along in being able to identify the American intelligence presence in Cairo. And of course, once they narrow that down, you know, then they can focus their resources. They're more efficient that way. And also once they narrow it down, intelligence agencies typically operate with something called slot succession. So if you if you figure out, for example, that the cultural attache in Cairo is really CIA, the cultural attache in Cairo is going to always be a CIA officer. Like there that slot is going to be there. You know what I mean? And so um you know to and this is kind of standard across intelligence agencies that that's how they operate here. Um they can then focus their efforts on just watching that one person as opposed to having to figure it out for everybody. And they can also target local uh, people who are working at the embassy to be their eyes and ears. And they don't even have to have access. Like if you're a janitor and you're walking around collecting trash, you can listen, you can, you know, you can tell like who maybe is coming in hungover in the morning or whatever. I mean, you can kind of give a lot of information that can be of use. And so just the fact that he was helping them in any way in that effort is just crazy. Yeah. No, it's like I said, a very serious harm, you know, and I think that, you know, part of the reason I asked that is I, I think that a lot of people are very focused on the bribery and the corruption and not as focused right on that, on that piece of it. And it is serious. I, I remember when I was a federal prosecutor, there was a breach that ultimately was alleged, allegedly um, engaged in by the Chinese government that stole all of our employment records for federal employees. And so when, if you were a federal employee, you know, you got all these notices about it and so on. But like, you know, my address and employment information was not classified, but the knowledge of every federal employee and where they lived and who they were associated with and so on could be very useful. And for, mm-hmm. you know, for intelligence purposes, recruiting potential spies and so forth. And so, of course, just any information that you give to a foreign government can be critical. And Egypt, obviously, it's placed in a very, you know, volatile region. And there's there's no question they receive very significant aid from the United States. So it's obvious why they weren't just um, they weren't just getting to know Bob Menendez because they had an affinity for New Jersey. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And I'll just highlight one more thing, which I thought was crazy, is um, Menendez allegedly met with the uh, a Egyptian intelligence official. Now, there was a thread on Twitter by a journalist who linked the dates that are mentioned in the indictment to a visit to the U.S. by the chief of Egyptian intelligence who was here and was going to be meeting with senators who were going to question him about the Khashoggi murder. And Menendez met with this, well, he met with an intelligence officer. He gave him a news article which reported on the specific lines of questioning that senators planned to ask. And it was like a Yahoo news article. And again, a news article is public, but, you know, 
Look, Egyptian intelligence isn't monitoring the entire U.S. media ecosystem. Right. You know, they might have missed that article. I mean, that was, you know, spe very specific reporting by giving it to them. And if, in fact, this was the same chief of intelligence who was there to be questioned about Khashoggi, he was giving them a heads up on, hey, this is what they're going to ask about. And, you know, it gives the, it buys them time to figure out their cover story. And I mean, if you the Khashoggi murder was really one of the major concerns, human rights concerns um, that, you know, the Senate was was concerned about. And I don't know. I mean, I, I view it as if that link is true and that's, in fact, the individual, they were basically he was basically helping them cover up a murder. Yeah. I, and just to put a finer point on it, by handing them the Yahoo News article, he was essentially endorsing it by saying these the question yeah, in yes. here is it's based accurate. on my knowledge. Yeah. Based on my knowledge and experience as uh as a senator, I think these are the these are consistent with what I think people will ask. And perhaps you could I mean they didn't allege this because they probably don't have the evidence of it, but it wouldn't be altogether surprising if perhaps he had a staff member leak some of that information to Yahoo and his. So then he could give it without it being you know, it, you know, well, essentially covering his tracks to some extent. So, yeah, I mean, he's in a very, look, Bob Menendez, very tough spot. Um, you know, he, he's done it once. He's beaten the government once. He thinks he's going to do it again. Not uh, as, as easy as it may seem. Um, and I think realistically, there's just too much, too much here. It's going to be very, very challenging. It's going to require some sort of, very aggressive and off the wall strategy to win this, like, for example, pinning it all on the wife. Yeah. Well, let's hope he steps down from his position in the meantime. Indeed. Okay. So, meanwhile, back on the Trump show, <laughs> Trump has called for the execution of the former. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, yeah. Well, the fact that that's our reaction to it, it's it's our second story of the day, right? The 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 you know the immediate past president of the United States and leading candidate for the Republican nomination for president called for the execution of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it doesn't, it not only is it like not a big deal. For treason. For, tre for treason, alleged treason. Yes, not actual treason, but yes, supposed treason. Um, the fact that he's he's done this is not only not that big of a deal for the It's Complicated podcast, um, but it's also just not a big deal to the news media, right? I mean, it got almost no reporting. And in some ways, it's interesting because there's been a dilemma that particularly during the entire Trump presidency, the media had, which was, do we cover every tweet and every, you know, rant or rave from this guy, or do we just ignore it? Cause we've figured out by now that he rants about something new every day to distract attention from everything else. And there's arguments that can be made on both sides of that, I suppose, but it, it is interesting, rather remarkable that the, the former president and current candidate for president can say insane things like that. And that doesn't even raise an eyebrow anymore. No, it's really gets to how much he's normalized the threat of violence. 
in our political discourse. I mean, it's insane. Can you just, I mean, I know it's so hard for us to imagine the before Trump era, but pick your president, George W., Obama, Reagan. Can you imagine any of them (laughs) accusing a general and a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of treason and saying that he should be executed. He should be put to death. Well, actually, I think the juxtaposition with the George W. Bush era is interesting, right? During the George W. Bush era, there was such a like wrap around, like wrap the flag around you, um, you know, respect for the military and so forth during that period of time, during the sort of quote, war on terror, unquote. That like every major sporting event, right, was like honor our heroes and like the military and so on. And if you recall, there was a lot of discussion at the time is will Colin Powell run for president to become the quote first black president? Obviously, it turned out to be Barack Obama, but to become the first black president, because the idea was that being chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was and, and was such a big deal. And so honored and so revered that, I mean, that was like the best possible qualification to be president, right? It was like such a big deal. Like the idea that 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 George W. Bush would be crapping on Colin Powell and calling for him his murder or something, that's like unthinkable, right? Yeah. I mean, merely that they disrespecting their character. Right, and, and the idea... Yeah. Yeah, if if George W. Bush or I mean John Kerry was nominated in part because of his military service, if either Bush or Kerry like disrespected a sergeant on the street, much less the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that would have dramatically altered their electoral chances. I I would think at that period of time, it was just such a different era, and that was not that long ago. We were both alive during that era, right? Yeah, I mean, we were was, alive, it, and I think that's interesting that you mentioned John Kerry because. You know, you have this big claim on the right of support our troops. Uh, You know, the whole this was the objection to kneeling for the national anthem, that it disrespects our troops. But, you know, going back to John Kerry, I think that was sort of a turning point because you remember the ad by the Swift Boat veterans that denigrated his military service and actions, um, which I think was kind of a new, like, a new phenomenon. I think that was shocking at the time. And we, I was, I thought it was abhorrent. Yeah. They, they said he conv- inflicted self-inflicted wounds on himself yeah. was, to get his purple hearts. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, it was insane. insane. Um, and I feel like that sort of heralded, you know, this era of it's fine to attack if military uh, people who've served the military that serves your interest. And then, you know, we saw after that um, Trump denigrating John McCain. I like I like war heroes who haven't been captured or whatever he said about right. him. And, you know, McCain was a POW. Um, we then had Mueller being dragged through the mud. Mueller, mm-hmm. who's also Marine and, you know, decorated um, military person. Without a peep. I mean, all these things are happening without any objection or a peep. And, um, you know, and in the last year or two, we've had attacks on the military by people like Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz tweeted a Russian army recruitment video um, a couple of years ago. And, you know, it had these like skinhead Russian 
military mm-hmm. folks doing push-ups and you know and he was he was celebrating how manly and you know uh, formidable they looked and then he juxtaposed it with i think a u.s army commercial that was you know it was a recruitment video that was featuring like women and you know uh, trying mm-hmm. to appeal to a diverse base to recruit um it's kind of astonishing like where we have come but i think the john Kerry example it just made me think of as a turning point yeah I mean, I think it was, and it's an interesting thing. I mean, Republicans have gotten to the point where for a period of time, they sort of tried to convince us that they really revered all of these things that now they don't, right? It's pretty obvious they don't. It's sort of like the mask is off, whether it's the Wizard of Oz coming from behind the curtain or uh, Senator Palpatine's revealed himself to be the uh, the Sith Lord or whatever. Um, we now sort of understand the reality, which is it's all cynical, it's all just whatever serves their interest uh, for that period of time. It, it's just, it's, it's hard to take it for more than what it is. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a supposed impeachment inquiry going on right now. Talk about things that aren't getting a lot of media attention. Um, the president of the United States has an impeachment inquiry as they're around the clock coverage. No, people are more focused on the shutdown because everyone understands that the impeachment inquiry is just a cynical, um, attempt to placate a very small minority of the Republican House, you know, majority. Right? Yeah. Um, oh, Alexander Vindman—that's another service. Oh yeah, person. and in fact, his there's promotions that weren't permitted, mm-hmm. right? And he all effectively was, wasn't he forced out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically forced out. So I guess you know we should address the legal question because I've seen it come up a lot on whether. These kinds of comments by Trump are going to get bench slapped in any way by a judge. And I think there was a question on whether Mark Milley in particular um, may be a witness in the January 6th case, uh, possibly in the Mar-a-Lago yeah. case, because I guess, you know, the document that was ostensibly being waved around at Bedminster um, regarding, you know, his plan, his warp strategy uh, was written by him. Um, So I'm not clear if he's going to be a witness, but what does this mean? So one thing that I I just want to help our listeners uh, think about the law maybe and understand it the way that I do um, versus the way that I think a lot of people reading newspaper articles think of it is, the law is not something you like Google and find some, find the words and then there you go. There's like some magical, magical law robot that comes and like as soon as you're, you violate the words, like it comes down from the sky and zaps you like Skynet or something. The The reality of the reality of the situation is that, yes, there's all, I've seen all these same analysis you did, Asha, where it's like, oh, Millie could be a witness. So therefore this is witness intimidation. The reality is Trump's on indicted for a bunch of different things. The question is, will a judge use whatever power she has? And, you know, it's, you know, we have at least a couple federal judges, Chutkin and Cannon, to, you know, um, to, to, um, uh, essentially punish him for inviolating his conditions of release or something along those lines, right? Because he's out on bond. So I guess the question is, will the government make an issue of this? 
Um, I actually think government may, because Jack Smith seems like he's, he's decided it's in his interest to parade every bad thing Trump does in front of Chutkin, which makes sense because, uh, you know, dragging the defendant in front of the judge is generally a good strategy by prosecutors, <laughs> particularly when the judge doesn't like the guy in the first place and is apt to sort of rule against him. And the judge, by the way, is immense power, which we've discussed in the past, but will Chutkin punish Trump? for publicly criticizing the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff and saying that he committed treason. I, I would, if I was her law clerk, I, I would advise her not to do that. I think it's a very, it would be a very bad idea. Um, you know, whatever you think of Trump, he's a candidate for president. He's commenting about another public figure, the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, giving what would be from a first amendment perspective, his opinion, um, a hyperbole. I don't, you know, he would claim that he wasn't actually calling for anyone's murder, but he was making a uh, a very you know harsh political point. You could bring in our arguments and all sorts of historical examples of all sorts of rough speech that was said from the founding to the present about in in the public arena. I just don't. I, I'm not saying that that's those arguments are valid. We don't need a hundred comments in our YouTube video saying that I'm defending those comments. I'm not, but I'm just saying that there's an argument that could be made there that is complicated and that's going to create a lot of thorny legal issues. The judge just doesn't need to go there. Um, it, it, it's sort of like if your kid, if your kid does something stupid, you know, could you do some sort of crazy thing to try to emancipate your kid? Like maybe it's very complicated. Okay. Why not just like punish your kid? Cause you're the parent. I just think like, she's got such immense power. I don't know why she needs to go there. I don't expect her to go there. No, I don't think Trump is going to be charged with witness intimidation either because why Jack Smith's got charged with a whole bunch of crimes. Why you, why would you add more stuff to it and try to have a whole sideshow circus at your trial about whether or not a tweet is a crime and he has a first amendment defense. Like I just wouldn't even, I wouldn't even go but there. What would be a line that he could cross? Um, I mean, certainly if he was specifically inciting people to kill Millie, like if he was telling people, you know, Millie lives at this address, like, you know, you, you know, it would be really, you know, so, you know, saying things like, Hey, you know, you know, we should, teach him a lesson or something along those lines. Okay. That would certainly be a different situation where there's the stakes are different. It's not mere speech. That might be possibly the, uh, the case. I mean, I think if, if it was somehow connected to Millie's testimony in a very specific way, like Millie's going to take the stand and you're saying things to try to intimidate him or lure him on or off. Even then I just, I think realistically words probably not going to be charged in this context. Do I think in a different context, if you told me one of my clients was attacking witnesses in a case, would it be, po uh, let's say over Twitter, would it be possible that a judge might do something about it? Maybe even there, like, I don't know, pure tweet, mere, mere tweets. Um, I don't know. Um, it's possible. Um, it depends on the circumstances. I think it's very fact specific. It's just, I appreciate what, what uh, you're saying. I'm sure I'm going to get some comments. Well, actually, have you read the conditions of release and you know, this and that? Yeah, I understand. I get it, but that's just not, that's not the reality of, of, of how this is going to work. Yeah. And I will say in addition to, you know, this being a non-event for the news media, which kind of gives us this 
a window into where we are in this political moment. As far as I can tell, no Republicans have called him out for this either. It's kind of astonishing. Yeah, I mean, he is. It, what's interesting is he's so far ahead for the Republican nomination. I think like fifty percentage points that a lot of like there, a lot of people are like suggesting these other candidates drop out before there's really many of many debates and you know before any you know contests. Right, it's not like Iowa's happened or whatever. So a lot of people are already being you know urged to drop out. A lot of donors are disinterested because he's kind of wrapped it up. And really, there's no career out out there for the most part for people who are critical of him. What's the lane for the people who are anti-Trump? I mean, Mitt Romney reti- is retiring. <laughs> Chris Christie is in maybe the single digits. I don't know. Um, you know, Ron DeSantis um, it was has tried not to criticize Trump, specific, uh, particularly by name. And it's shown, right? He's just, he's, he's floundered. I mean, I think, um, you know, he, the, realistically trying to be vaguely anti-Trump hasn't helped him either. Um, so I don't, I don't really know if there's an anti-Trump lane in the Republican Party. So, Renato, before we go, let's talk 80s fashion. I okay. mentioned the members only jacket. Did you have did you own a members only jacket? And you have to be truthful. I, I will actually truthfully say no. We were kind of we were really broke when I was a kid. So we got all my clothes from secondhand stores. True story. So we would get things or not all, but almost all, vast majority. So I did not get cool stuff. Like I wanted like parachute pants. Yeah. Like remember those yes. with all the all the, the zippers? Yeah. Right. I didn't, you know, those like super cool, but I didn't get those. Red leather. I remember there was this, yeah, guest jeans. Wasn't it guest jeans? Weren't those like guess, super? Yes. I was so upset that I could not, everyone was wearing guest jeans except for me. I was wearing, you know, generic, like generic, whatever, Kmart jeans. Yeah. Yeah. I, my parents would not buy me. So, I mean, I remember Jordash jeans were. Oh wow, as a girl too. Yeah, as a girl, because you know Brooke Shields was oh, yeah. the model for Jordash. Nothing comes between me and my my Jordash jeans. It was a very provocative oh, yeah. commercial. I don't know if you remember, yes. and she was like 15 years old. Like, um, mm-hmm. the, <laughs> this was a time when things could fly that would not fly now. Um, but right. Uh, but they were expensive. My parents would not buy me those. And then when I got into high school, um, the limited was the big store and all the cool girls had, you know, there were these sweaters that had these kind of like roll collars, you know, and I had to buy the knockoffs at the other (laughs) store, which, you know, they always look different. You could you could always tell that they were knockoffs. Um, but I mean, yes. I have, to, I was always like curious at the absolute fortune that, you know, pe- people I knew, I was like, how, cause those clothes were expensive. Like guests was also, you know, guests, Benetton, uh, yes. um, which was a very exclusive store. I don't even think there was a Benetton store <sighs> in my city. Um, wow. 
yeah, you'd have to go to like Norfolk, Virginia to the harbor to to get to a Benetton store. I think I had a Benetton t-shirt and I was so proud. That of was, well, you can imagine. So I grew up near Chicago. Mm-hmm. So shoes were like, that was the start of Air yeah. Jordans. That was such a big deal during that period of time. Right. And, you know, all of the Nike air and all of that. And I wanted that those so bad that my parents drove me up. There was a, in Wisconsin, there was a Nike outlet store that sold like slightly irregular shoes that you could get for much cheaper, much, much, much cheaper. They weren't like quite as nice and whatever, but like I got a pair during, I think junior high or high school. It was like a big deal because I had But they were the real shoes? They were Nike Air shoes. They weren't quite, they weren't like Air Jordans. Yeah, they weren't But they were like irregular. There's something wrong with them, but like, I don't know. I couldn't figure out what it was, but it was like good enough. Um, and at the time they had those air pocket things. Remember you could see the little windows Uh and like people would sneak up like in junior high, like they'd sneak up and they would pop your air pocket. They would go with the pen (gasps) and would it deflate the shoe? It would, it wouldn't deflate it, but it would take out whatever special supposed special air had been pumped into there. Oh, that's mean. That's really mean. Yeah, I, I, you know, junior high uh, boys are not exactly kind. That's not their. Well, well neither are junior high girls. Foremost quality. I have to say yeah. that now I watch my kids, and as far as I can tell, kids today dress like slobs. <laughs> I, I am very concerned about for teenage girls the objectification and way in which social media is teaching them that sexuality is should be at the forefront of how yeah, they dress. So this is yeah. so interesting because the style that's what I can tell is like all like hoodies and baggy clothes. And I've been thinking, wow, they're really, you know, it's like, yeah, hoodies, like big baggy pants, you know, there's no shape you can see. But maybe it's too extremes and maybe... Oh, that's it's interesting. It's the crowd that I'm seeing. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I have a teenage stepdaughter and looking at how her and her friends dress, um, it's just something I that, that I, it's really hard for me to understand why underage yeah. kids Actually, should I be take dressing that back. That Crop tops, I know. Mid, yeah, that's a big style. I mean, with just, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just think, and just seeing how they portray themselves on their in Instagram and yeah. TikTok and so forth. It's just, I, I worry that social media is reinforcing to them that essentially it, all their focus should be on how they look and sexuality when really, particularly at that age, um, it is just, it's so important to focus on like, all the great things you could do with your, like your body is also can be made for like playing soccer and like, you know, and doing all sorts of, you know, maybe you should focus on like math and science and other things. Like I just, it's, I don't know, it's, it bothers, it rubs me the wrong way. Well, you and I never had the cool clothes, but look where <laughs> we are now. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think, I still don't have the cool clothes. I'm not nearly like you're the, you're the Vogue uh, featured uh, person on this podcast, not me, but I definitely, I was one, I was like one of the only people at my like 20 year high school reunion that looked better and cooler now than I did when I was in high school. 
Well, you know, um, even now I'm a very economical shopper and I posted a picture the other day from the Texas Tribune Festival and I got so many compliments on the dress I was wearing. Uh, yes, I saw that actually. Yeah. Which was amazing, right? That was a, that it's, was like It's a $24 dress from Walmart. Yeah, you said that. You're like, I got this from Walmart. I'm like, that's really interesting. Is that like, was that a promotion? Like, was that a promoted <laughs> I thing? wish. I wish. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. Walmart <laughs> spokeswoman, Asha Rangapa. Yeah. yeah. I, I was like, I was like, it looked beautiful. Yeah. The shoes were from Italy, though. <laughs> of course. <laughs> M-S-W Media. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give. 